So uh, next week is our last week in our series in the book of Genesis. We have been studying uh, chapters 11 through 50, uh, and we are coming to the conclusion of uh, the story of Joseph today. And next week, uh, Pastor Hunter will be uh, bringing a conclusion and kind of summarizing the whole thing. Um, I'll be at the men's retreat and uh, looking forward to being with you men and excited about that. Uh, We're going to look at chapter 50, verses 15 through 21 right now. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is the word of the Lord. So Genesis 11 through 50 is the story of God's faithfulness uh, to save the whole world through the descendants of Abraham and Sarah. God set his covenantal love on this family and promised that in each generation, he would be faithful to carry out this messianic hope and this promise that through every single generation, he'd be faithful to that. So ultimately, it's the promise that Jesus would come from this family as he did. You know from the story, we're going to kind of summarize uh, here quickly, but uh, you know from the story that there was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Jacob had 12 sons, and Joseph was his favorite son. Uh, he, he lavished the coat of many colors on him. Uh, he favored him. And Joseph shared a dream that he had had where his brothers were going to bow down to him. You may remember that. And it led to jealousy on their part, and they, they threw him in a pit and ultimately sold him into slavery into Egypt. Now, You know, when we we think about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we rightly think of them as nomadic people, right? They lived in tents, and and they have animals, and that's their wealth, and uh, they had no home. And and once again, they they were nomadic. And, And we rightfully think of them that way. But I sort of wrongly think of people back then, four, 6,000 years ago, as all sort of being in in that nomadic type lifestyle. But it, it would be wrong to think so. And here's why. Uh, Egypt, where, where uh, Joseph ended up going and being, was a superpower. And they were not, I'm sure there were nomads in Egypt, but Egypt itself and the main cities uh, was a place of power and wealth and great architecture and beauty and music. And, and it's unbelievable. I was just in New York City a couple weeks ago and got to go again to the Metropolitan Museum and one of the grandest places in the museum, and the museum itself is a piece of art, but the exhibit of the Egyptian exhibit is, is absolutely unbelievable. 
And I've, I've been there three times, and in each time, the takeaway, I walk away saying, this, this, was, not, uh, this, was, uh, this was a magnificent society with incredible art, with incredible architecture, and, and great power and wealth. And so it, what we see in Joseph's life, he, he's being raised as a nomad. He gets thrown into to, uh, this pit and, and attempted to be killed by his brothers, but then later uh, sold into to slavery, he winds up being in the palace, right, of Potiphar's house. And, and then uh, because of uh, this Potiphar's wife, he ends up going to prison. Then he gets out of prison for interpreting the dreams. And now he finds himself literally in, in Pharaoh's palace, the superpower of all superpowers of the world at that time. And he is second in command. There's no one more powerful in the world, perhaps, than Pharaoh himself. Because Pharaoh had appointed Joseph over the effort to store grain for the famine and made him his most powerful servant. Unbelievable. Now, Jacob, his father, was back, you know, uh, in the Canaan land, uh, still sort of in his nomadic life, but, but getting to the point where they're near starvation because of the famine that was in the land. But he had heard that there was grain in Egypt. And I love what it says in Genesis 42, especially in the NIV, about uh, the conversation that Jacob had with his sons. He said, it says this, when Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you keep looking at each other? I have heard there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some so that we may live and not die. And I get a kick out of this passage for a couple of reasons. One, I mean, it's just so direct and I like it. But second, this is the way dads talk to their kids, right? Especially, so, why are you guys just looking at each other? I mean, we're starving to death. Go down there and get us some grain, for goodness sakes. And so that's exactly what they do. Joseph's brothers, except for Benjamin, came to Egypt and when Joseph saw them, he decided to not reveal his identity to them. Instead, he accused them of being spies, and he put them in jail. And, and you got you to gotta think that had to be a little bit satisfying for him, right? <laughs> After all they did to him, it's just like, for three days, I'm going to let you guys suffer, and I'm going I'm to enjoy this. After three days, it says, Joseph said, I'm a fair man, and I'm going to give you a chance to prove that you've told the truth. I'm going to keep your brother Simeon, but I want you to go back and bring back your brother Benjamin, who was Joseph's full brother. They had the same mother. They came back, told their father all that happened, and so finally the brothers returned to Egypt and came to Joseph with Benjamin, and they bowed down to him, fulfilling the dream that he originally had and that they mocked him for and they hated him for. Eventually, Joseph told them uh, who he was, and he had them bring Jacob and his entire family to Egypt, where Joseph could care for them during the famine. And there's three things I want to see from this passage today. Knowing your place, believing in God's goodness, and practicing grace. Knowing your place, believing in God's goodness, and practicing grace. First of all, knowing your place. So in our passage, Jacob has died, and his brothers are now fearful. Now that our dad's dead, perhaps, perhaps uh, Joseph is going to re- try to carry out revenge and kill us. And so they, sent jo- so, uh, so they sent a message to Joseph saying, we just thought you should know <laughs> that dad's dying wishes were that you not kill us. <laughs> 
uh, you know, for the time we threw you in a pit and sold you into slavery. Like, uh, you remember that, right? So uh, that was, I swear to you, that's, ex- that's what he said right as he died. So you don't want to go against that, right? Now, we would all understand if Joseph did decide to seek revenge. But he says he won't do it by saying this. Do not fear, am I in the place of God? His rationale, his reasoning is like, you don't have anything to fear because I am not in the place of God. And again, I want you to realize he has become one of the most powerful men in the world at that time. And yet he recognizes his limitation. He recognizes that he is finite. He recognizes that he is a creature and not the creator. And so he says, I am not in the place of God. I do not stand or sit in the place of God. I will not take retribution. Have you ever noticed how um, chairs represent uh, authority? How chairs do. Uh, When a pope for the Roman Catholic Church makes a declaration that is binding for the entire Roman world. Uh, he does so by something, he'll, he'll sit in the throne of, of, of St. Peter, basically, and he speaks ec cathedra, meaning, or writes it, ec cathedra, which means from the chair. And there's sort of a misunderstanding, actually, that, uh, that not everything a pope says is binding for the church, but it is when he sits in the papal authority and, and writes from the chair, then it is authoritative and it's binding. Universities have chairs, right, that are endowed. Someone pays for a prestigious post uh, for there to be an authoritative scholar in residence. We have chairmen and chairwomen uh, for committees. For about 17 years in our home, I had one of those big, ugly leather chairs that faced what? In the living room. The television, right? And it's, it's the place of authority, right? And you don't get in. So the thing about, you know, society's evolving, right? Uh, when we were younger, guys, I don't know what it was like for you, but in my house, you did not sit in dad's chair. In my, in pap's chair, you don't, to this day, I won't sit in his chair. It is the throne of the father, right? You just don't sit in my dad's chair. In my generation, my boys could sit in my chair, but if I came to the room and it was time to watch TV, especially a game, if one of them was sitting there, I'd just like walk up and be like, like, get out the chair, right? Get out of my chair, you know, or else you're getting out. <laughs> I really didn't threaten him, but how do we sit in God's chair? How do, we, how do we sit in a place where, like, we are literally, we're in a place we should not be? Am I in the place of God? We do so, and we all do this, by seeking to be our own moral authority. By seeking to be our own moral authority. And if you're going to follow God, if you're going to follow Christ, this is sort of an elementary thing. This is one of the first things you have to get to a place. You have to get to a place where you say, I no longer want to serve as my primary moral authority. No longer am I going to make the rules in my life. No longer am I going to be the one that's so-called in charge. And we all blow it, and none of us do this perfectly. But you have to get to a place where you say, I am not the Lord of my life. And, And I no longer want to have the rule and reign over what is true for me. I'm going to submit to God's authority and his word. 
And until you get to that place where you say, what God says about life will be my authority, you're, you're actually acting as your own Lord and Savior. And you really can't have a relationship with God. We all say we want a relationship with God. We're all fond of saying that Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. But you don't have a relationship with God until you have an authoritative scripture. Until you can say, I will let God's word speak to me about things like sex, power, money, uh, my future, my present, the way that my marriage is going to look, the way my parenting style is going to look, the way I treat my neighbor, the, the way I'm going to think about culture and society and, and people, that we have a burden, a call on God, from God himself, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Until you get to the place where you say, that will be my moral objective, to love God wholeheartedly and to love my neighbor and, and to let him be the Lord of my life, then we are just actually in charge. And this is the original sin. There's only one, one rule in the garden, interesting, and it was do not eat from the, this fruit of this tree. And yet in doing so, they rejected God's authority. They sat in his chair. We seek to be our own moral authority. We're all doing it. The next way that we do this, and I, I certainly do this, is seeking to control other people. We, we sit in God's chair when we try to control others. When we think we can control other people, what we're really saying is, I know what's best. I can fill you up. You need me. I am the, the authority. And we're sitting in God's chair when we do this. This is particularly true for people like me, <laughs> not just control freaks, which I am, but pastors, right, and teachers and professors and, 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 and doctors People that are in the people business, people who are supposed to be there to help people, we do become authoritative in a way, and we have a body of knowledge. But if we're not careful, we get to a place where we always think we know what's true for you. And there's a sense where that's really messed up and wrong. We can't control people. I have found marriage, <laughs> marriage, to be, <laughs> with my cold, it kind of sounds... Yeah, like marriage. So anyway, I found in my, in my marriage that there is power in that relationship. And, and my marriage has, has changed me. There's a power in Becky's love for me that, that has brought change, but it does have limits. And ultimately, she can help change me, but there's also a sense in which it only can go so far where God has to be the one to change me. I can affect change for Becky. I can speak goodness into her life and love and support, but ultimately, I can't control her or change her. God has to be the one to do that. Amen? <laughs> Preach. So the, the ultimate way in which I get caught up in controlling people is not people in church necessarily, although I certainly do, do that, and not my wife, although I certainly do that, but it's in parenting the most, by far. And you can control kids when they're young. Can you not? The younger they are, the more you can control. Uh, you can tell them when they're going out, when they're not going out, when they're really little. Uh, you're literally picking them up and walking them around and putting them in a the car seat. You're in control, but that changes, and it changes quickly. And, and as soon as they get a will, you can't control what they think and feel at least, you can control where they are and what they eat and so forth. You're not going to control their inner life. And as soon as they start driving, trust me, you are not in control very much anymore. 
And now that all my kids are out of the house in college or having graduated, I'm still trying to manage and control them. And here's sort of the ultimate sense that I do that. I know for a fact it's God's will that they move back to Arizona. All three of them. And they don't yet understand that. And it's your duty as my church to pray every day for all three of them and future spouses and present spouses to move back. Now, I joke, but (laughs) this is my heart's desire. And I'm going to level with you. I think it's a good one in all sincerity. I know you're going to laugh, but truly, I think my desire for this is even godly. And here's what I mean. God has created the family beautifully uh, and in a way uh, that is meant to be a resource, right? Uh, in, in Jacob and Joseph's age, it was un- unheard of for, for families to, to split apart and not be together. So like, you're there to support one another. I think we're lacking in our highly individualistic society where uh, in, in our culture in particular, where we only think of our own nuclear family instead of like our, our parents and our grandparents and the burden in, in most cultures, like, you know, people live together. And I'm not making the case. I don't want my kids to live with me, all that kind of thing. All I'm saying is this. It is right for me to long to have my family together. But here's where it breaks down. It may not be God's will. And they are keen to remind me of this. In fact, I just gathered my two that are, uh, one's in college, one just graduated. And I said, I want to paint a vision for you guys. Next year, Zach, after you guys graduate, I would really like you guys to at least prioritize Arizona as one of the places you would move back. And they reminded me, Dad, do you remember that 20 years ago, you moved our entire family away from grandparents and everybody and extended family in order to plant a church? I said, yes, because that was God's will. (laughs) See? You see where I'm getting at, though? I think I know God's will for their life, and I don't. I know what I want. It it is a burden for me to want to be with my kids, and that's a good thing, but I can't take that good thing and make it an an ultimate thing. I can't control that as much as I want to. I'm not God, and I have to get out of God's chair. I can't control my boys. They're like arrows that have been shot out into the world and by God's grace to do good for his kingdom. But I can't control, I can't control them. It would be wrong to do so. They are the Lord's. I am not the Lord. Amen? So we control people. We're sitting in God's chair. When we seek to be our own moral authority, we're sitting in God's chair. And when we seek vengeance, we're definitely sitting in God's chair. And he says, get out of the chair. And this is exactly what Joseph is talking about. When he says, am I in the place of God? What he's saying is this, only God can mete out justice. And beautifully, he does something that we learn from brother Paul in in the book of Romans. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And brothers and sisters, I have a fear in the church right now that we are being very tempted to keep going into this mindset that we will overcome evil with evil. 
We're seeing that in politics. We're seeing it in the culture wars. We're seeing the way that we treat one another, the divisiveness, the argumentativeness, the way we're tearing our, our, the very fabric of our society apart by attempt thinking that through evil means we will obtain good. It does not work that way. Amen? You overcome evil with good. You overcome evil by loving your neighbor as much as you love yourself, not through attacking your enemies, not through mocking people, not through politics, not through the, through the world's power. You do it by overcoming evil with good, with love, with sacrifice. Beautifully, Joseph carries this out. And if you notice what a good man Joseph is, very, very few characters in the Old Testament that, that, that come across so good as Joseph. In fact, Joseph serves in many ways like a Christ character. Except for the bragging about the dream in every other way, he's constantly, he's constantly serving God. When we nurse vengeance and take vengeance within our heart, when we are bitter and angry and unforgiving, brothers and sisters, we are trying to overcome evil with evil. And not only that, you're drinking poison. Vengeance, anger, bitterness, judgment, it's literally like drinking poison and expecting to kill somebody else, but you're killing yourself. Only God has the knowledge, the right, and the power to judge, and he is calling us to get out of his chair. Get out of my chair. You don't have the right to sit there. He alone is the one on the throne. The next thing I want us to see is this, believing in God's goodness. Joseph sees his life in a radically God-centered way. He knows in his bones that God is good, even though his life has been filled with tragedy and difficulty and struggle. And he says this famously, you've heard it before, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about so that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What is the heart of what Joseph is saying here? You did evil. What you did was evil. It was wrong. But look what God has done. God is good. He has placed me in this place of authority to now provide for you, you evil brothers of mine. I am now in a place that I can serve you and your children, and that is good, and God is good. God is God, Joseph believes that. He is all-powerful, and he's altogether good, and we need this in our hearts. We need to know it in our bones that God is good. We have a tendency, though, to have a circumstance-centered life instead of a God-centered life like Joseph where if my circumstances are good, then I say, God is good. But if my circumstances are bad, I say, well, God is bad, or God doesn't exist, or God is evil, or God is against me. But either way, good or bad circumstances, Joseph knew in his heart and his mind and his soul that God is good all the time, right? Brothers, this is what we need. Sisters, this is what we need. Life is filled with evil. Caleb mentioned this last week beautifully. It's short. Even if you live many, many years, life is a brevity. It's gone quickly. And our days are often evil. But God, God is good. And when you live with this perspective, you gain an amazing freedom and get an incredible resource. 
And it's a resource I need. There's something about me that's really kind of funny, and it's funny in some ways, and it's not funny in others, but the ways in which it's funny is like when Becky and I will decide, <clears throat> like, hey, we're going to go get Italian food tonight. <laughs> but on the way to get to the restaurant, I'll start throwing out five other ideas. Like, hey, we could also, we could get Mexican, you know? It's like, of course, Mexican food exists. We could do that. But we decided on Italian. Like, we've already made a reservation. I'm like, we could get Thai. You know, it's like I, I, I do the what if thing a lot. I make a decision, and then I think, well, what if, what if? And, and knowing in your bones that God is God and God is good frees you up from the what if game. And it's not, it's not that big of a deal when you're talking about restaurants, but it's a big deal when you're talking about, have I made a decision that's cursed my life? What if we had moved there? What if I took this job? What if I had asked her out? What if she had said yes? What if I had not done that? And, and what if I had done this and it affected my health in this way? All the what ifs, at the end of the day, you can calm down and say, God is God and God is good. And God is with me. Amen? He is with us and he's good. He was thrown in prison, you guys, and was able to say, God is good. He was enslaved, put in a pit, treated horribly by his brothers, and he was able to say, God is good. What a resource. The last thing I want us to see is this, practicing grace. Joseph says so beautifully, do not fear. I'm going to provide for you and your little ones. And then he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. How beautiful is that? Joseph is literally living out Romans 12. He's overcoming evil with good. Now, the question I have for myself and for you is this. How can we become that kind of person? How can we become the kind of person that that sees God as so good, to have God so central in our heart and life, but also to be the kind of people that actually extend grace to one another? that are filled with truth and grace, people that love one another, forgive one another, compassionate and kind towards one another. Colossians 1 so beautifully says this, when when Paul says, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The degree to which we see how much we were alienated from God, hostile in mind to him, doing evil, the more we understand that in our bones, in our heart to say, it was that bad for me, and yet God set his love on me like he did on Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and he has set his covenantal faithful love on me to the extent that his own son was crucified on my behalf. He lived his life for me. He died his death for me. And he rose victoriously from the grave for me. If that can be true of me, the one who was hostile to him and against him and an enemy of his, then how much more to a holy God am I called to be a person of peace and grace and reconciliation and kindness and mercy? Amen? This is our calling. This is our calling be a people of reconciliation and peace, forgiveness, and grace. We deserved judgment. We didn't get justice. In Jesus, we get grace. 
Our challenge as we go today is this. Get out of God's chair. You're not the Lord. And there's such beauty and freedom in getting out of the chair and just saying, I'm just a person. I'm just a person. I'm just a creature. I'm created in God's image, but that's, that's me. I'm just a person. I'm finite. I'm not infinite. I'm eternal because of God, but I have limitations, and I'm not the Lord. I don't sit in his throne, and I don't want to sit in his throne. Let's get out of his chair. But the other thing I want to challenge us is this. Who do you need to stop judging? Because you've got to get out of the chair. When you're judging other people, you are firmly planted in God's chair. And he's saying, get out. <laughs> you don't deserve to sit there. When you're judging others, you, you, you want to know what else? You're judging, when you're judging yourself, you're sitting in God's chair. When you keep condemning yourself, you keep beating yourself up, you are sitting in God's chair. You want to know? I've had to tell a brother that I love profoundly recently, quit talking about my brother like this, man. He's talking about himself, running himself down. I'm like, I won't stand for it. You quit talking about him like that because you're bought by the precious blood of Jesus. And when you live in shame, and you just keep judging yourself, you're sitting in God's chair. Get out. He's already declared that you are his, forgiven, beloved. Future resurrection, co-heirs with Christ. Get out of his chair and quit judging yourself. Quit judging other people. Quit judging yourself. Quit trying to control people. Who do you need to quit controlling? <laughs> trying. You're not controlling them. You're trying. Get out of the chair, man. Who do you need to quit judging? Who do you quit nursing vengeance towards? And what action do you need to take today? I love Joseph acted. He provided. He provided food for his family. He forgave them. He moved out in faith. What do you need to do today to be a person of peace? Let's pray. Lord, we are, we are a people who have been reconciled to you, the Holy One of Israel, not because we're good, but because you're good, not because we're faithful, but because you are faithful. Lord, humble us. May, may we humble ourselves before you, Lord, and accept you fully as the Lord to quit trying to be our own moral authority. And to place ourselves firmly under your law, your word, your power, your authority. And to walk in your ways, Lord. Forgive us for the many, many ways that we're unfaithful. But please, Father, by your grace, help us to see ourselves as who we are. Help us to see that you're good. And help us to be a people of reconciliation. We beg you in Jesus' name. Amen.